So Jake was wondering, like, it takes a lot of volunteers. It's on the bottom of your monthly bulletin. Right there. Every Sunday, it takes 43 volunteers to make the magic happen, if you want to put it that way. Um, your monthly bulletin that is there in the seats is information for you that has good information on it. If you want to take it home with you because you're like, oh, man, i got to look at that more and read that, you can do that. It's kind of intended, though, that it's there for you to look at and have information and then put it back in the seat, and it stays there for a month for the next people who come see it. Uh, and then next month we'll change them out. But if you take one because you need to take it, that's fine too. Um, there's a lot of good info on that about the life of the church. Um, my name's Andrew Conrad. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I look forward to meeting you at some point. And I am uh, the pastor, one of the pastors here. We are in a series, sermon series now in the book of Revelation. And um, uh, the seven churches of Revelation. And today we come to the church of Sardis, um, asking the question, is the church dead or alive? When you think of somebody in particular, imagine somebody right now. Get this person pictured in your head. This person has a name. And when you think of that person, you associate their character qualities and their actions with their name. So when you claim a name, it means something, right? This is why identity theft and fraud are not simply inconvenient, but infuriating. Most of you probably know that this week I was impersonated, um, and you probably got an email that you thought was from me, which was not from me. It was a phishing scam. It had my name in it and the church name and then a Gmail address that was created. So it looked like it was official, but alas, it was not. The scammer did this and apparently they're doing this more and more frequently to churches because people want to help and, you know, then I, in my name, I asked you for, to be very discreet and, and help out um, and to do so, help people in need uh, by getting gift cards, right? And then you had to send those gift cards somewhere else. And, and so the deeper you went into it, the a little more um, obvious it was that it was phishing. Um, I received a lot of texts, a lot of emails, and a lot of phone calls um, from many of you asking if it was real. Um, and the more that I got contacted, the more angry I got. Not at you, mind you, not at you, but but that somebody was impersonating my name. It's like, why does this happen? And then they're doing this and putting this name on our church that this is how we're going to come after you to get, just buy gift cards for everybody and what we're going to do. So by the way, that's not how we will ask you to give to the church. If we have a special project and a giving thing, we will always direct you to give through our website or one of the standard ways that we give. Um, and so you should know that as well. Um, but it made me really mad really mad because they had taken my name and used my name in that way. However, due to the high response rate, I think I'll start all my emails that way. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, name. Reputation. As we read the text today from Revelation chapter 3, ask yourself this question. What is in a name? What reputation do I have? Follow along. Let's look. Revelation chapter 3. This is the word of God. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, feet to walk in your ways, hands to serve, hearts that will follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So is your reputation that of one of a fraud or one who is faithful? Is the church dead or alive? This is what we're going to look at. The first point today is this, the reputation of many who are fraudulent. And the first sub-point of that is looking at reputation versus reality, right? Because we have this idea of who we are, but what Jesus is telling the people in the text, they have a reputation for something, but it's not reality. Apparently from the outside, the church in Sardis looks good. Everything seems good. They probably met together for worship services pretty regularly. You know, the lights are on. But it didn't really carry over into the rest of their life during the week. They were Christian, that is Christ follower, in name only. But the reality is that Jesus says they're dead to him. Dead? Those are stern words, right? When someone gets kicked out of the house cut off from all financial support, it's tough love. It's never fun. Sometimes that happens, and it's a tough kind of love. But, but it might go a step further. Maybe there's a fight that ensues, and there's a shouting match, and people are super angry, and either the parent or child just yells at the other, you're dead to me! Those are harsh words. And Jesus is saying, your reputation is that of being alive, but you are dead. Now, why is it that he says to them that they're dead? I mean, we ought to know that, right? Because that's scary language. What's going on? It's not explicitly mentioned here, but there are two clues that I think suggest two things um, and that are consistent with the other churches. The first is they're immoral, right? Immorality is, is going through the place. And the clue to this is in verse 4. You can put that on the screen. You'll notice there that it says that their clothes are stained or that their garments are soiled, which points to some kind of impurity, right? Okay, you've, you've become impure. You've gotten dirty. Now, we know that sexual immorality and idolatry was rampant along the route to Thyatira and Pergamum. But not only is he saying that 
they are immoral, he's also saying that they're unmerciful. And we see that in verse 2. The clue in verse 2 says, I have not found your works complete. You have left something undone. There's something more for you to do. And probably like some of the other churches, they're failing to show love to one another, especially to those in need. Jesus taught us that we have to love people, care for the poor, the sick, and the weak, right? In Matthew chapter 25, you can put this verse on the screen, Jesus gives these words, then the king will say to those on his right, this is the story of the sheep and goats, if you're familiar with it. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And they say, well, when did we do this? And they say, well, whatever you did for the least of these of mine, you did for me. Right? But this church apparently had not done, they had not completed what they were supposed to be doing. They were leaving something undone. I think it was that they were not showing mercy and helping those in need. Furthermore, like we read in our confession of sin today, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. James, who writes this, is the brother of Jesus, right? I mean, now that means, you know, like when Jesus was young, James is like, nah, I don't believe it. Like, shut up, you know, I'm not listening to you, whatever. But James comes to this point where he believes that his brother Jesus is who he says he is. And James, watching Jesus' life and seeing how he operate, gives us these words that we read in our confession. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, to claim that you have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. I think what Jesus is saying through the Spirit here to the church in Sardis and to the church ever after is it is very possible to have a dead faith, to say, I want to be known by reputation. My name is, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. But then to not put it into practice. He says, if that's what you do, you have a dead faith. We live in a society without sexual or gender boundaries and easy access to pornography. Immorality is everywhere, right? Violence is everywhere. Violence is on the news. It's on the shows. My favorite show, Yellowstone, is full of violence. Even your Instagram, your TikTok feeds, you can watch people die on those. Violence is everywhere, which is to say that we're not very merciful I mean, people, a six-year-old. The kids who were sitting here, some of them were six years old. A six-year-old shot his teacher and said he would do it again. Six years old. Our society is broken. I don't, I don't know all the reasons for that, but I'm telling you that like violence is rampant in our society and because it is what it's doing to us is hardening us it's making us I think in some ways at least less merciful we have an outrage culture so we are violent with words and we will cancel you and then never talk to you again right a verbal kind of violence in that way where's the mercy there's a lot that could be said about that. I'm not going to say more about that except 
to say this, that a smartphone is easy access to porn and to violence. Parents, please think like a hundred times before you put that device in your kids' hands. Think about when are they ready to have this? When am I ready to deal with everything they're gonna see because they have this? Smartphone's not evil, it's a tool. But the things it allows you to access, parents, you gotta think about that with your kids. I remember, and thankfully, I'm so glad I don't have little ones today, right now, right? Like, I mean, the smartphone coming around in 2005, my kids were still around and they, and they wanted phones, but we held off as long as we can, could. And the, the first one didn't get one until uh, eighth grade, and he was the second to last person in his class to have it. And it wasn't even a smartphone, it was like a text um, phone, and then later he got a smartphone. And then each kid got one sooner and sooner. Like, I know the pressure, like I get it, but recognize what you're doing. Figure out how you're going to try to control that if you think you can control that. And maybe instead of doing that, just put your smartphones down and instead go with Lauren and the kids. Go to a family serve day. Go, go help real life. Go help step two of the, the ministries we support. Go feed the homeless. There's probably many things we could say there, but reputation versus reality. Jesus is calling that church out for it. But the other thing that he does, the second sub-point of this, is that he tells them to remember and repent. He says, okay, so you need to remember, right? So he doesn't give up all hope on them. He says, look, remember what you heard at first and repent. Remember what did they hear? The gospel, the good news of Jesus, that the power of God for salvation of all who believe, all who believe, no matter how bad you've blown it, and that salvation is important, it's critical, but I think we get confused about salvation and what it means. I think a lot of times we think of salvation and we're trained to hear of salvation thinking of it as a destination. Salvation is, I go to heaven one day. And there everything will be good, which it will be. There will be no more sin, sickness, sorrow, or tears. So salvation is a destination I get to go to, away from here. That's only part of the story. Salvation refers to, biblically speaking, that word that usually is translated salvation refers to life and all of life holistically. Every part of life from beginning to end. You are saved completely holy. And it should touch every part of your life. God will change your life. Which means, of course, that salvation is not simply about a destination, but about resuscitation and transformation. It's about all of that. Let me say that again. Salvation is not simply about a destination, but it is about resuscitation and transformation. Suppose you go swimming at the beach and you get caught in a riptide and you get pulled under, you can't fight any longer and you drown and you're on the bottom, but a lifeguard saw you and started swimming towards you and sees where you went down and dives to the bottom to the ocean floor, finds you and rescues you. Now what happened? The lifeguard took you to shore and transported you to safety. That's your destination. But before you were aware of any of that, that lifeguard also performed CPR on you and gave you life and a heartbeat again. Breath and a heartbeat, resuscitating you. And not only that, probably warned you about the dangers of riptides, which you probably didn't need much warning about. And you probably think, I'm going to change my life accordingly and pay better attention to that. And 
you know what? I will forever remember and honor that lifeguard. Transformation. You see what salvation is, is saying, yes, Jesus has come and he has resuscitated you and given you life when you were dead. He is transforming your life now to be more and more like him. And yes, your destination is sure. But it is all of life, all of those things, so that faith should be alive and not dead. Repent. If you're only about the destination and not the transformation, you could be in grave danger. Jesus is saying you might have a dead faith. And he says to them, wake up, wake up. Christ said he would come like a thief in the night. and No one knows when it's going to happen, but you better be ready. And the, the people of this church would understand that wake up and be ready and not knowing what's going to happen because Sardis was a fortress city up on a hill. They thought it was impregnable and nobody could conquer it. But twice in its history, it was conquered when the watchmen were overconfident and kind of fell asleep. And Jesus is saying, wake up! Don't fall asleep. Because I will come, and when I come, I'm calling everybody, and they come to face judgment. Stern warnings. Stern warnings for people who think, it's all good, I'm good. And you may wonder, is, is there any hope you have for us today? You know I do, because you know the gospel always does. You see, the second point is that there is a remnant of a few who are faithful. He tells us this, that there's a few who have remained faithful, whose clothes have not been stained, whose clothes are white. And as he's talking about clothes, which is kind of odd in a way, but also kind of cool, and we're going to kind of trace this through the Bible, he's, what he's saying is two different things. One, he's talking about our righteousness and our need to do things that are good and right and true, to follow God in that way, to do what is righteous. Their unsoiled garments symbolize a persistent, though not a perfect, obedience and a courageous faith. We know this idea of clothing uh, ourselves. I mean, if you, if you know your Bible, it's all there. Think of Colossians 3, 12, where Paul is talking to them. He's writing, he's saying, hey, you have to put off your old deeds and put on your new things. And he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly, let's clothe yourselves. What should you be known for? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And there's more before that you can look at. But that idea of clothing yourself, putting off the deeds of darkness, the misdeeds, the sins, and the sins, and putting on, clothing yourself with what is good and right. Or in Revelation, continuing the theme within the book of Revelation itself, chapter 19, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Okay? And his bride has made herself ready. Now let me just pause. You can leave that up there, but let me just pause for a second. So he talked about coming like a thief in the night. The other way the gospel repeatedly talks about Jesus' return is as a groom coming for the bride. You see, because what was different in that day than it is today is like there would be a, a marriage proposal, an agreement between the families, right? And so that's the engagement. They're going to get married, but then they don't really see each other for a long time, especially if they're like in different cities or towns. But there's going to come a day when the wedding is, and on that day, the groom shows up at the bride's house and says, all right, it's the day. Come on, let's go. You and me, we're getting hitched. And the Bible talks about it this way and says, Jesus is going to come. The groom is going to show up 
to get you. So bride, be ready. And this language is using that and saying the bride is there in fine linen, bright and clean that was given her to wear. But then it also says that that linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So you have this thing where the clothing is the righteousness that we do. That is doing what is right and following God. Persistently, but not perfectly. And the reason for that is because there's a second kind of righteousness that's even hinted at right there. The fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, but it comes back to us even in the text that we have in verse 5 of chapter 3, um, where it says, and you can put that verse up there, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So this is grammar lesson, but will be clothed is passive, meaning it's something that you are not doing. It's, not ha- it's happening to you, you're not doing it. And what Jesus is saying is, those who did not soil their clothes, who were faithful, alive, persistent, will now be given to them white garments that are perfectly pure and clean. And this is the other part of righteousness that the Bible talks about. And this is a righteousness that is not our own. It's a righteousness that is given to us by God. It is perfect righteousness that can only come from Christ because even our righteous acts are not perfect. The prophet Isaiah tells us this in chapter 64 and verse 6. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So Isaiah is holding it up saying, all the things that you think are good and right, which they are, still are not pure, perfectly pure and clean. There's only one, only one, who has ever done it perfectly. And his name is Jesus, so that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin, the one who knew no sin that was perfect is Jesus, to become sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying is is there's this, this exchange that takes place. Your sin goes to Jesus, and Jesus' perfect record of righteousness comes to you so that you can be accepted before God the Father in heaven, a place of perfect paradise. And this righteousness is one we have to cling to because we need it. Not only does he give us this this hope for the remnant of those who are faithful in this, this imagery of our clothing that is righteous and the righteousness that is then presented to us, but he also gives it to us in the form of citizenship. Notice what he says here about the names. In verse 5, he says, Your name is written in the book of life, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. A name. In the Old Testament, to be erased from the book meant you were removed from the the registry of citizenship in Israel. So Moses pleads with the people when he goes up on the mountain, when, when symbolically the people of God, Israel, leave Egypt and they come to the mountain and they get married to God. Right, this is, it's kind of a marriage ceremony where God says, okay, let's get married and here's the, the terms of the marriage and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they say, okay, we're good with that. Moses goes back up to the mountain and then they're like, the p- wedding party isn't even over and they make an idol and start sacrificing the idol and all the revelry that comes with that. And God's like, what have you done? The, ma- the wedding's not even over and you've already blown it. And Moses pleads with God and he says, take my name out of the book of life and keep theirs. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Now, God doesn't do that. He forgives them and he, and he, and he, he uh, they come back to him and Moses continues to be the leader. 
but this idea of the name continues on through the New Testament. So real quickly, let's just survey here. Luke 10, 20. Jesus says to his disciples who go out and cast out evil spirits, he says, hey, that's cool, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Or in Philippians, chapter, the end of chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4, um, says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 4 verse 3, he's talking about those who have helped him and served with him well, and he says, whose names are in the book of life. Or in Revelation 20, verse 15, at the very end of the book of Revelation again, we see that the names are there, and it says, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. This theme of this registry of your name being known to God is significant and it's meant to be full of hope. Because what he is saying is that those who are alive, even though you're not perfect, even though you've blown it, your name's in the book. It's in the book. And when I come back, as the bride to get the groom. When I come like that thief in the night and we stand there and I open the book, Andrew Conrad, come on. Because the name is in the book. He tells us then too that he will confess in verse five that I'll confess your name before the Father and before his angels Jesus talked about this in his gospels too, in the gospels too and said don't be ashamed of me and um, talking about the remnant of the faithful are not ashamed of Jesus even when it's unpopular and he won't be ashamed of them man we were singing that song today all the poor and powers I cannot sing that song I cry every time so now you'll probably look at me every time but whatever it's okay I'm a grown up um, the reason I can't sing that song without crying is because of a gift of this church that is alive. What do I mean by that? Um, that song is like like PTSD in reverse. It's like a post-traumatic joy event for me. Because when you guys gave me a sabbatical in the summer of 2016, my family and I went out west and we traveled to national parks. My two youngest kids who were still, who were middle school and high school at the time, um, actually they were both in high school at the time. My two older ones were in college, but my two youngest who were in high school at the time, we were in Yellowstone. We drive up to the, the highest point you can drive on, on the highest mountain there. And then we walk out to kind of the, the top there and where you can overlook the, all of Yellowstone from there. And my daughter and my youngest son run out to the edge of the cliff and hold their arms out and start singing that song. Shout it so that everybody will know that you are God. And whether it was that moment, I don't think it was that moment that was magical. That's the thing I remember. But what it means is that you guys taught them when they were in Sunday school and in nursery. So that like a lyric riding in an ambulance can say, hey, you need to know Jesus. And my youngest who is really shy, and like when we, before we planted the church at the other church we were at, he could never go anywhere without his blankie. That shy, like that kind of shy. We had to bribe him to go to children's worship. Follow the Skittles trail, come on, let's go. Um, 
helped lead with Young Life, had a Bible study at our house, has formed a Christian fraternity at Virginia Tech, and tells me with five weeks of planning that he's going on spring break on a mission trip to the Middle East to share the gospel. That song just gets me every time. But it gets me because of this church that we're not ashamed, even when it's unpopular. And my kids and family benefited from that. And your kids and your family should too. And also as a sidebar, you should note too that pastor's kids are not generally excited about church. Like, oh good, we get to go to church again. No, it's like, Dad, do we have to go to church again? I'm like, yes, you gotta go. Well, I don't wanna go. I don't feel like going to youth group tonight. You're going. I mean, I drag them kicking and screaming. Like, no, you, this is part of your life. You gotta be involved in this. It wasn't easy. But I'm just so thankful and, and have such joy of what God has done with that. I don't know, sidebar's over. I guess all that to say this. I think we are a church that is alive, not dead. We gather for hospitable worship. There's a slide you can put up here for this. We gather for hospitable worship to hear about the beauty and the hope of the gospel. We grow in authentic faith in community with others who encourage us to follow Jesus. We go out into society to share our faith and to serve others, being the hands and feet of Jesus because we're unashamed about Jesus. What does that look like? It means we send adults and students on mission trips. It means that we have people who go to real life, recovering from everyday addictive lifestyles in the city, working with people who were incarcerated and are coming out, or people who have struggled in life in the city in general and need help. Our people go and help with that. Or step, strategies to elevate people for the victory reading program and Gilpin Court and so many of the other things that they do. They go to do that. Wellspring Christian Counseling, which is a missionally aligned partner that uses our building here, meeting the mental health needs in our own community. You individually just being hospitable and having neighbors over for a party or going on a walk with a friend, listening to them, befriending them. All those things are signs that faith is being put into practice, that there is transformation happening and it's not just about a destination. Because we know the beauty of new life given to us in Christ. And so what about you? Are you with us? Are you dead or are you alive? You may be wondering, I don't know, have I done enough? Does Jesus really know me? Those with dead faith show up to church now and then. They prefer Jesus over Muhammad or the Dalai Lama. But Monday to Saturday doesn't really look much different. Doesn't look like they follow Jesus. If you were to ask somebody at work who found out that, that you say you're a Christian and go to church, if you asked them about that and they were shocked, that would probably not be a good thing. Like, I don't know, you don't look any different to me than anybody else. I mean, it's not like you have to be a weirdo. I'm not saying that, right? But like, they're like, what, you? Like, you're talking about, we get hammered every day and you're with us getting hammered and like, we're, you know, doing all this other stuff. You? If you are overwhelmed with guilt and worry about whether you have been good enough, it's a different story. That's a different story. Why? Because I would say that's a sign of life. Your conscience is crying out saying, I need to know that I'm loved, that I'm forgiven, 
and then I'm accepted. And here's the deal. Jesus does not require perfection of you. He provides perfection for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Dead faith people think they're okay with Jesus. They don't really want to follow Jesus. Living faith people have a heart that is sensitive to sin. Definitely not perfect. But they want to follow Jesus. You see, the difference is, living faith people are in the fight. And there's a lot of battles you lose in the fight. But you're in the fight. Dead faith people don't want to fight. They withdraw. I'm not fighting. It's too much. One last verse, if I can. Thanks for being patient with me today. 2, 10 to 12. Notice what Jesus says, or what the writer's saying about Jesus here. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that is us, are of the same family so that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. You're part of the family. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Because your citizenship is in heaven. Your name is in the book. Remember the story that Jesus tells? The parable of the prodigal son? Remember the younger brother asked for his inheritance early? Dad, give me my inheritance early, which is basically to say to dad, like, um, you're dead to me. Just give me the money you owe me and leave me alone. I'm going my own way. That's what he does. A long time passed. He partied hard, blew all his money. His life was a wreck. He was feeding pigs. Then he didn't have anything to feed the pigs with, and he started eating what the pigs had, and he realized, this sucks. And he does the only thing he thinks he can do. He says, I'm going home. He goes home empty-handed, broken, begging, and desperately in need of kindness and grace. And the father says, my son who was dead is alive again is alive again and he throws a lavish party for him and what does he do he gives him a ring and he puts a robe on him and clothes him and says you are part of the family it's this glorious celebration this return and yet there's the older brother who's there and he's pissed He's like, he doesn't deserve it. No way. We shouldn't be doing this. It's just taking more of my money to bring him back. I'm not going into your stupid party. It should make us realize there's two ways to be dead in your faith. You can run away from it, or you might think you're right in the middle of the house and have it, but are dead to it. And also tells us there's a true and better older brother whose name is Jesus who says, I'll sacrifice my inheritance. I'll give it up for you so that I can call you brothers and sisters and I will open my arms wide and say, come home. Come to the feast. I pray you do that. That you're alive. Pray with me. Jesus, I pray that these words, not 
not my words, your words from the scriptures, and then my words that those that are true would sink deeply into people's lives if I've misspoken anything, help everybody to forget it. And Jesus, I pray that in your goodness and kindness to us, your grace, you would help us to rejoice greatly. Give us all those post-traumatic joy events because we know that we are alive. Help us to live as people alive with hands and feet that serve you. Help us to be people who gather together to worship you. Help us to be people who are growing in authentic faith and help us to be people who are going out to serve and share our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.